Have you ever had someone refer to something going on in the community who asked you, what's going on there? What's the story with all that? The right answer lies with the people directly involved in it, the people who know. Why not hear their story? So welcome to What's the Story, Pekin? I'm Gary Gillis, your host, and I hope you enjoy this Pekin podcast. As we continue into this bicentennial year, one of our goals is to record Pekin history. And we're looking at hearing the story of iconic people and places. When names were recommended to me, the first name that came up was Chuck Dancy. Uh, and that was my goal. Unfortunately, Chuck recently passed, and it's a great loss not only to his family, but to the community. But fortunately, there's someone who knows his story very well. And he's my guest today, and that's his son, Bert Dancy. Bert, welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the Chuck Dancy story. I, I know in looking at the obituary, and again, I share my sympathies with you. Um, it was a long obituary because it was an accomplished resume of so many great things your dad did. And so if you can, share with us the Chuck Dancy story, who passed at 107, when I would tell people, then they, we'd speculate, let's perhaps honor the oldest person in Pekin. And there was no doubt we knew who that was. Yeah, he was so. certainly the oldest uh, veteran of World War II. Sure, sure. Uh, it's, it, it, as we discussed before, it, it, it's difficult to, to condense it. Uh, but I'll do my best. He was born in 16, mm-hmm. which was even before the uh, Americans were into the First World sure. War. He had a half-brother that passed when he was six at home. Uh, His dad passed when he was 10 at home. His dad was an invalid the last eight or nine years of his life. Went to work at Watson's Grocery at the age of 10, uh, stocking stuff and then dressing chickens in a basement. Mm. So hard work and with with his, you know, it was before pensions, so the family kind of pulled together. He had two older brothers and an older sister and they all pulled together to, to make it. It was mm-hmm. before there was any safety net. Uh, started, he, he knew all his life he wanted to be a writer and, uh, and then went to journalism school uh, at the U of I, planning on a, a, a life in journalism. Worked as a reporter for the Peoria Star after journalism school. Uh, he would tell that when he was, he was there, the covering the courthouse and the city and stuff, uh, the guys, the old men sitting on the coping outside the courthouse were Civil War veterans. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, he talked, right. he talked with Pekin Civil War veterans mm. as, a, as, a, as a, you know, journalist and young man. Sure. Uh, and then, surprise to surprise, the, the war was coming and he he knew he was going to be da- drafted. By that time, he had uh, he was in Peoria uh, doing a Peoria beat, and uh, and decided uh, it's it's in his autobiography. He knew it was coming, and he decided he would not leave it up to the draft board, but he would make a choice. And he looked into things. He was a very rational guy, and decided that the Marines were his best chance for great training and saving, mm-hmm. uh, staying alive. Uh, you got to remember this was, the war was in Europe. Sure. Nobody saw, Jap- very few people right. saw Japan coming. So he joined the Marines in, 
was the second OCS class uh, out of the Marines in April of 41. In, uh, in early December of 41, he and a couple of Marine buddies uh, had a beach house above La Jolla Beach when it was mm. just a beach. Sure. <laughs> and living the life of Riley, he used to say. They had privileges at the uh, riding club, the La Jolla Tennis and Riding Club. They went sailing, uh, took trips down to Tijuana, and then Sunday morning on the 7th of December, they were listening to the radio, and the Japanese were attacking Pearl Harbor. He uh, next day they were setting up machine gun lines on in the Baja, hmm. not knowing where the Japanese sure. were. Uh, Thirty-one days later, on the 9th of January of '42, he was at Pearl Harbor, uh, and it was still smoking. Hmm. Uh, two weeks later, he headed out to Johnson Island, a small atoll. Uh, two football fields long with a with an air field on it, and that's where he stayed for eleven months. Is it in the Solomons or in that it was, area? It was eight hundred miles from anywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and stayed there. They they improved it. Eight hundred Marines on the island, mm -hmm. and then he started. He had a he had a brief stay. I guess you would call it R and R in in Honolulu. After that. Uh, he was captain of the guard, which means you had a piece and y and you had a motorcycle, and because they were the, the Marines were the the police for everybody. Uh, but that didn't last long because some colonel asked him what he was doing, and he said, "I got a I got a really good deal here," and and all Loomis said was, "What a waste!" And mm. ten days later, he was heading west. And then he, the, the, his war story is, is well told in Munji's book, but it, then he moved through the Solomons. He got to Guadalcanal after it was roughly mm -hmm. uh, secure, uh, that really roughly. And then he, he, he went on through, sure. uh, came home, uh, came home in, in uh, after three years overseas, he came home on a 30-day leave in December of 44 and married his, my mother, Nina. And it dawned on me uh, in thinking about it uh, that their courtship, the, the last three years of their courtship was all by Six and Ermel. I wish I'd yeah. asked them yeah. both more sure. about it. Uh, and then he was stateside, and in the summer of 45, he got orders to report uh, to Guam. He was going to be part of the invasion of the southern islands, Kyushu and Honshu in Japan, mm -hmm. and was ordered to do a 30-day advanced uh, aircraft artillery course in Fort Bliss, Flor Fort Bliss, Texas. It was an Army base. And I s he still has, and I still have. Uh, they were just looking at the home islands for the invasion mm -hmm. of Japan. That uh, was topo maps, rainfall maps, uh, road maps, and he was scheduled. The invasion was scheduled for November of that year. Mm -hmm. uh, the Marine, all seven of the Marine divisions were scheduled to be the initial landing people, uh, and then 
the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. The war was over, right. and he was home for the holidays. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, good outcome for the family. I went back to yeah. work at the paper. Uh, he was he, he, he. I think he regretted it late, late, uh, later because he he prided himself as a newspaperman of being independent and objective. But he ran for city council, and was elected. It was the youngest uh, city council member elected in the late forties. Norm Shade was the mayor. Mm -hmm. Shade wanted to be in charge of putting roads and infrastructure in the north side, and since Dad had the military background, he was a commissioner of police and fire during his two years. Uh, Al Sellers and George Saul, a couple other Marines, had convinced him to join the reserves. Easy money, you know, little work. Uh, so then the balloon went up in Korea, right. <laughs> and they all right. got they all got. They all got pulled back in, and he trained Marines for the for the Korean conflict at Paris Island, South Carolina, mm -hmm. and then came back, uh, went back to work for the Journal, and then in the mid-50s, when the Journal merged, uh, Henry Slane, the publisher, uh, asked him to be editor, asked him... Uh, to, to uh, Dad said, make some noise, i.e., be aggressive, hmm. and uh, he had no problem doing that, and that involved signing his name to editorials. So uh, he, you know, he probably had five or six opinion pieces a week in the in the Peoria Star, uh, and did that for for many many years. The other thing that uh, he did uh, was travel. He went to Russia by himself in f I think in '56, right after he was named editor and uh, traveled throughout Russia alone. He, he said that the, the major uh, Washington papers and, and New York, the Times and the Washington Post, their correspondents were confined to uh, Moscow. They, were, they, they didn't want them mm -hmm. wandering about. Well, this kid from Pekin and Peoria, you know, kind of the hayseeds, they, they didn't look at him as closely. And their intelligence must have been pretty poor because by that time he was a retired colonel in the Corps. So mm. how they let him, <laughs> how they let him move around Russia freely with a camera, yeah. I, I don't and, know. Hmm. Uh, but he did a lot of travel. Went to Israel after the Seven Day War, went to Israel a couple times, went back to Russia uh, all the time, r reporting on it mostly. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then for retirement, he and mom. Uh, that retirement gift from the journal was a uh, a trip back to China. They'd gone to China together in '77 uh, before he retired and reported on it. Uh, Carter had lifted the uh, ban on Chinese. The Chinese had opened it up, and so they were the second group of Americans to visit uh, China mm -hmm. in '77, and then again in '84 they went to China, back to China, and through Russia. Uh, so, but he really had a really <laughs> fun, sure, uh, fun. He, 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 it's it's rare that we. It seems to me, in, in in my experience, it's rare we get to do what we wanted to do, what we loved to do mm -hmm. from when we were kids. Right, and, and he he was able to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, your dad and your mom both were those type of people that passionately gave back to their community. <clears throat> they were both 
involved in a lot of organizations. Uh, I don't know if you recall all of them, but I, you see some that are very familiar names, and they were part of it, and not only part of it, but led it as well. Yeah, uh, Dad uh, uh, was uh, pretty strict in not joining. Uh, I think the Loman uncles mm -hmm. uh, belonged to the Masons, so he, you know, he kind of was ushered in. I, I don't think he was very faithful mm -hmm. <laughs> as a Mason, and mm -hmm. he didn't really join anything else because he wanted to be. Uh, he didn't want his independence and his judgment sure. and his opinions compromised because he, mm -hmm. you know, had he didn't even invest in stock. He didn't want s stock mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it it could be used against him. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it just I guess it interfered with his inter mom. On the other hand, was very active. Right. She got she was the first woman to get the Distinguished Service Award from the Chamber of Commerce uh, in her mid forties, uh, and she was she she was very very much involved mm -hmm. in giving back to the community and and all of that well we uh she was the last recipient unless we reinstated of the barney matika award at pekin rotary yeah. which yeah. honors those people who've dedicated themselves in service to youth so that was a <clears throat> special honor i remember you were there with her that was in her hundredth year i believe yeah that was her yeah. last so no the award was uh a few months before right. uh, we got uh, the awards. Right. Uh, yeah. One 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 fun story. Uh, in in '59, in October of '59, somebody threw a, a, a bomb, some dynamite, underneath the car in the garage mm -hmm. behind the house at 419 Haynes. And Mayor Shade just lived two days, two two doors away. So uh, my brothers and I were asleep and didn't wake up. The police were laid a, a bit skeptical about that, though we were 11, 13, mm. and 9. Mm. And the police came out and looked at, looked, they thought maybe it was aimed at, at Norm Shade, but they didn't uh, check at the, uh, our garage. And so the next morning, uh, mom's looking out the window and she says, Chuck, I think something's, something's sticking out there in the, in the garage. And he said, uh, oh, probably something the boys did. So then he goes out and checks it out, and the front of the car is blown up with dynamite. It wasn't rigged to anything, but it, somebody threw a bomb under his car, <laughs> and uh, uh, never found, never, never solved the problem. The, the mom's story is they, they made a they asked him for a list of people enemies who might have, have had a, issues with him, and the list was really a little too long to be of much use. But then mother. Uh, with a twinkle in her eye, I remember saying, they didn't even ask me. Mm. Yeah. I might have had enemies, too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was my car. Sure. Wow. Uh, well, but, uh, and then, you know, he retired at 70. It was a mandatory retirement. So he had mm -hmm. 37 years of retirement. Uh, but he was an avid reader all of his life, from 5 to 107. Mm. Wow. So Good for him. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since we're here at the library, that's a good, no, good way to add to the story. He he uh, he taught. He, he read by the time he was five. There were books in the in the front hall of of the house at six hundred eight Hillier, and then uh, he, the Carnegie Library was there. Mm -hmm. It was walking distance, and he he spent sure hours and hours at the Carnegie Library. Oh yeah, he, he his. And he's got a library of probably four or five thousand books. Sure, 
Wow. A, a student of history and a, and a lover. He talked about, when he talked about, he had a great interest in, in, uh, in history, but especially the uh, American wars. And he would talk about the Civil War as if the guys lived over on Washington sure. Street. Wow. You know, that kind of yeah. familiarity. Exactly. What a recollection. Well, I think the thing that I, I appreciate, you brought a pretty thick volume or a couple different volumes of family history, and you brilliantly condensed it down, so I appreciate that. <laughs> but it also speaks to one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to encourage the community to undertake in this bicentennial year. You've just shared your family story, and I've encouraged other people to do the same. You know, I talk to people all the time who will say, yeah, someday I have to sit down with my mom or dad or my grandparents, and it never happens. So on the uh, website uh, for the Bicentennial, peakinbicentennial.com, uh, we have posted a series of some simple questions to just hopefully get people started. Yeah, right. And then hopefully with that, as they uncover more and more, they'll share more and more, and they'll leave having their own family story to add to Pekin's story as well. No, so it's, it, it's a really a, a, a good point, and what people should realize is that D Dad's autobiography that he wrote was written to his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. Mm. Sure. So it was, it was, he wasn't bragging or anything. Right. He was sharing his life story and his wisdom right. in it. Exactly. And that's a great thing. I that's, just wish I had great. forced my mother to do the yeah. same. Yeah. I mean, you know, you... Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful idea. Well, and as, as a, I guess, a, a subtext to that, um, and this is something I've done, and I, I, I plan to give a program on it shortly to my friends at, at Rotary, on my phone, and I've told people, you can record your family history, just hit that little icon that's a, that's a microphone and just start talking yeah. about it, you know, you, or interview somebody in the family. But if nothing else, I've got a, uh, in my notes part, I've listed and titled it a lifetime of lessons. So if you don't want to necessarily or are not able yet to share the family story, at least you know there's things you've learned in your own life, things you'd want to share with with others, and just list those lessons you've you've learned. And sometimes I've stolen some quotes that that resonate with me and put those in there to share with the next generation. So whether it's writing down the story, and I, I really appreciate this, Bert, because my dad did the same thing. And the last sentence in his 283-page book was, Gary, now it's your turn to tell your story. So, but it was, it was addressed to me. And uh, at the end, he said, now, you, know, you write your story. To, at that time, when he finished, he had grandchildren and could list them as well. Yeah. So that's a neat thing. It's a great thing I, that I, did. I'm, we were privileged in that the Illinois State Historical Society did, started mm -hmm. to do that many, many years ago. And one of the first uh, ones they did was Dad's uncle, my great uncle Martin B. Loman. Mm -hmm. And Marty Loman was uh, has a very interesting life. He he was he was the principal uh, provider of the first Pekin Bridge that was state funded, the mm -hmm. bridge that was built in twenty seven, the lift bridge. Mm -hmm. And they came and they interviewed him, and they've got a book. Uh, you can listen to the transcription, so you can actually sure. hear his voice. Great, but they also have a book that they put out. Great. So no, it's yeah. it's it's another good uh, reminder of things that people can access to uncover some of Pekin's history in this bicentennial year. And uh, and to have it not only personally, but to have it at the library for right right for the generation. That's great. We appreciate that. Something we can add as well. So, Bert, thanks again for being here. Thanks for sharing uh, probably, if not the most iconic of, of Pekin stories. So, uh, 
thanks and uh, take care. We'll be talking to you soon about the iconic uh, Pekin Union mission. Thanks. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I want to thank those who make this effort possible. The Pekin Area Chamber of Commerce, our sound guy and recording expert, Mike Eaton, the Pekin Public Library for providing us a place to host and record, and to our many guests who add to the archives of What's the Story Pekin? Please be sure to share your thoughts by emailing us at pekinpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on whatever platform you listen to and stay tuned for more podcasts to come.